0: Well, good morning, everyone. How is everyone doing? Great. That's good to hear. Well, I want to start by just reading the passage. We're going to start with Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. It'll be up on screen here for you guys. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's open up in prayer. Dear God, let us have ears to hear. Let us have open hearts to hear what you have to say about a very uncomfortable at times, a very challenging subject in in that of suffering. And as we consider our freedoms here in America, Lord, let us not take those for granted. As many, many believers around this world are suffering and being killed today for you. For their beliefs in you, Lord. And so I pray that as we uh, consider that, contemplate that, work through that idea, may we be be people who run towards suffering and not run away from it. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, I spent the last two weeks in Canada hanging out with the old family. And it was an absolute ton of fun. And, And primarily the reason it was a lot of fun is we have nieces and nephews in just that fun age group two to about 11 they love everything they're up for pretty much any activity when it comes to complaining i'm the chiefest among them they are up for anything and everything Um, but as i'm sure many of you know fun can have a rather short shelf life when you have little kids involved if you miss a nap if a meal gets delayed an hour or two, all heck will break loose. And I use the word heck because I'm up here behind the pulpit. You know what word I'm thinking about. It's, yeah, it gets, it gets crazy. It gets crazy out there. Um, and both of these instances, missing a nap and missing a meal, is what drove this story that I want to share with you guys this morning. Uh, we were up at Banff one afternoon we had driven from Okotoks, Canada, which Okotoks really helps you get that Canadian dialect down. Just say, Okotoks. That's all you need to We're going to go visit some moose. We're going to hang out at Okotoks and we're going to head up to Banff. That's all you need to say. I actually sound more like Donald Trump there, but, uh, <laughs> but either way, maybe he's Canadian, um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but either way, we had spent a long day driving, about two and a half, three hours, We had spent a good amount of time hiking in my namesake canyon, Johnston Canyon, of which I attempted really hard to convince the older nieces and nephews that my great grandfather forged this trail. I could not convince them of that. Eh, That's the way it goes. We ended up at a lake right outside of Banff, and we spent a ton of time in the water and on the sand and all that. So as you can imagine, by the end of the afternoon, from the two-year-old to the 62-year-old, We were all tired and hungry. We needed food. We needed it fast. So we head to downtown Banff. We sit down at a restaurant. And between the time we order to the time we get our food, which is about an hour, this is what ensues for four of our little youngest nieces and nephews. First, we have Jonah, eight years old, loves the outdoors, loves soccer, loves anything that involves tree forts and all that kind of stuff. Well, about an hour earlier... When he was reading his menu, he misread the menu and replaced all the oars, replaced the or with the word and. So consider this little guy as he's looking for this bounty of sides to come his way because he was going to get onion rings and french fries and ice cream and orange slices and this and this and this. And you can imagine his disappointment when the waitress shows up with mac and cheese, his entree and just... Orange slices. You could see the suffering on his face <laughs> as he got fruit instead of fried oniony goodness or fried oniony potatoes, which he so desperately wanted. Next, we have Abby, three year old, sister to Jonah. She was fortunate to have an interpreter with her, her mother. <laughs> so her mother ordered her exactly what she wanted mac and cheese with a side of fries. It was a great order, Abby. Excellent, excellent order. Abby's suffering, though, came at taking to this meal as if she hadn't eaten in like three or four weeks. She was just ravenous about this. So much so that when her dad reaches over to grab a fry, she almost bites his hand off. This is my meal, right? This is my drink. These are This is my food. And I don't think a three-year-old would come to this conclusion, let alone an adult would come to this conclusion. But she doesn't realize that this meal was provided to her free as a gift from the same person that's taking the one fry from her. (laughs) This meal is a free gift to her. And she's going to leave this meal half eaten because she's going to get in her stomach. She's going to be done. She's going to run away. And there it is, a meal half eaten. And yet at that moment, this little girl had this sense of injustice and suffering because a fry was being taken from her plate. Next we have Evie. Two year old, sister to Weston, who I'll introduce here in a second. But after seeing what her brother ordered, Weston, which was the exact same thing Evie ordered, for some reason she realized that his fries were better than her fries. And not only did she let the table know this, she let the entire restaurant know this for the next half an hour. Somehow, some way, in the kitchen there was some magical powder sprinkled over his fries because she just could not get over that fact. It's oh, his fries were so much better. They were the exact same fries, Evie. Exact same fries. So be it. She suffered over something she didn't think she had. She thought her brother had something better. And then, last but not least, we come to Weston, four years old, older brother to Evie, and of all the kids. They sympathize with Weston probably the most. Uh, we had about 20 people at our table, and the waitress would bring out, there was only one waitress, and she would bring out one or two plates at a time. So it was kind of like we were getting our meals in shifts, and it took you know, a few minutes between when the meals came out. And so Weston's looking over this, and you can see this poor little boy calculating all these things, because an aunt gets their meal, the uncle gets the meal, the other aunt, the other cousin, cousin, cousin. And you can see his face start to really get concerned have they forgotten about me? (laughs) Am I going to get my hamburger and fries or, or is there no hope for me? And his mom kept saying, it's going to come out next. And yet another plate, not his. And you can see the worry and the suffering on his face as he just thought everyone else will eat. And maybe I won't get to eat. Maybe. Well, as we open up our passage here in revelation two, I, I, I find that the most critical question for interpretation and application is to understand our understanding of suffering. Better said, what is suffering? And more precisely, what is suffering as experienced by a little first century church Working to trying to struggle to survive in a thriving metropolis off the coast of modern-day Turkey. What does suffering look like for this set of Christians that their decision to follow Christ has had huge ramifications on their social life, financial life, political life, life in general? As an adult, with adult experiences under my belt, it's really easy for me to dismiss my nieces and nephews' view of suffering. This is kid suffering. You know, we'll get over it. You know, you'll get your food, your fries, the fries are the same. You made a mistake on the menu, you know, live with your choices, live with what you did. Um, And, and mind you, you're laughing now, but I want to share with you guys a few of Jeremiah's uncle, Jeremiah's words of wisdom. Mind you, I do not have any kids. So that's where this is coming from. If I had an opportunity of which I held my tongue, my wife's wisdom here saying, don't say this, Jeremiah, this is what I would share with each of the kids. To Jonah, I would say something like this. Sometimes, Jonah, we think we're going to get onion rings, but instead we get orange slices. (laughs) Live with your choices, Jonah. Get over it. But that's really difficult to tell an eight-year-old who's really hungry that they have to live with the choices and the mistakes that they made. So I held my tongue on that one. Abby, I would have said to her, You know, Abby, you need to give back generously from the blessings given to you, obviously. And here I am, a 35-year-old that doesn't really get that very well, that struggles with that exact same thing. All the blessings God's given to me, I tend to hold on to them tighter than to give them up. And yet, here's this poor... It'd be remiss for me to think that a poor three-year-old would be able to understand that truth, that a meal is a free gift to her, and not something to control or contend with. To Evie, I would strike up the irrelevant machine on this one and quote one Mick Jagger and say, you can't always get what you want. (laughs) You can't. No. Um, And as I get this cross-eyed look from a two-year-old who doesn't understand Mick Jagger or any of the great Rolling Stones lyrics that are out there, I would step off my soapbox, noting that sometimes what you have is exactly what you want. And yet she would look at me like, what are you? And still keep crying. So I didn't say that either. And lastly, to poor Weston, the saddest of the lot, I would strike up the deepest proverb I could find and note. Patience, Weston, is much like the ocean. When you understand its depths and its breaths, you can begin to trust without question. (laughs) Of course, Weston. Just grab that. Four-year-old Weston. Just embrace that, and and that will unlock the mysteries of the world. But the reality is, is proverb aside, if you really honestly feel like your food's not coming, it's difficult to trust. It's difficult to be patient in that. Um, Now, as an adult, with adult acquaintances and uh, talking to adult family members or friends, I often find myself saying these exact same things when I run into adult suffering. Or real trials. This isn't kid stuff anymore. And yet, do we not find ourselves responding the same way? Saying the same type of things. And I think this comes from a place, and it probably can come from a number of places, but two that I want to highlight is, oftentimes, I dismiss suffering because it's different than my view of suffering. My view of suffering is superior or or better tied into reality. And so I just don't think that that's honest or it's really worth my time. Another reason I dismiss suffering is because I, as probably most of us here in this room, don't like to suffer. It's not something we we run towards. It's something we run away from. Suffering is difficult. Suffering is challenging. So the best we can do to ignore it, to push it aside, to say it doesn't exist, is better for our self-interest for our preservation almost. And yet, two facts remain about suffering, and especially suffering in light of those who believe in Christ, those who are suffering around the world today. First is, is that suffering is real. There's a few statistics that I want to just throw out for you, and they're big numbers. But since the death of Christ, over 2,000 years ago, 43 million people have been martyred for their faith in Christ. Now, what's crazy about this statistic is that 22 million of those people have been killed in the last 100 years. That's crazy to me. Over 200 million people every year are denied basic human rights because of their faith in Christ. Solely because of their faith in Christ. 160,000 people will die this year will be murdered this year because of their faith in Christ. That's 400 people a day. That's 16 people in the time we have together here right now, this Sunday morning. So suffering is real. Suffering's a part of life for many, many believers across this, country, uh, this world. The other thing about suffering that we have to recognize is that suffering is promised for those who claim to be disciples of Christ. Matthew 24, verse 9, Christ is explaining to his disciples what's to come after he leaves, what they can expect because of their association with him. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So the fact that suffering is real, the fact that suffering is promised, remains that we would be remiss If we were to dismiss suffering, we have to think about it. We have to contemplate it. We have to work through it. As we open up our passage, we're introduced to a church that's facing financial consequences, social consequences, political consequences, and life and death consequences because of their association with Christ. Their faith in Christ and Christ alone has landed them in an extremely difficult spot. Um, The church or the city, let's talk about the city first. The city of Smyrna is very similar to Ephesus, the city we talked about last week. It had a lot of financial success, it had a lot of political clout, and it had significant social standing in the Roman world. It was a big deal city. It was known. If you were from Smyrna, you were known. Um, It does, though, have one very large distinction from all the rest of its rivals. It's the only city of the seven that still exists today. Uh, modern day, it's in modern day Turkey. It's named Izmir and it's about roughly 35 miles north of Ephesus along the Aegean Sea. There'll be a map that'll show up here. You'll see geographically how all the seven churches relate to one another. We're up at Smyrna right now. You'll notice it has a, it has a harbor. That's important. It's also considered one of the main gateways to Asia from the Roman empire. These are two important facts. Um, Because for while many of the church, many people in the church were suffering, many non-believers, many people who didn't fear God were thriving in Smyrna. It did not pay to be a Christian in Smyrna. The consequences of following Christ were felt every day in the marketplace, how you were treated, every day in social circles, every day in the laws and legislations that turned against Christians. Nobody was there to protect this church. Smyrna, as a city, was also well positioned uh, politically as a favored son of the Roman Empire. Uh, Its economic success opened up numerous opportunities to be known as the city of cities throughout the empire. Uh, The city even minted coins boasting first in Asia in beauty and size. You can tell it's got a really good PR campaign to it. First in you could you could hear that like Salt Lake, first in Utah, in beauty and sight. I mean, it's like it's that kind of that same vibe. They were doing it back then too. I mean, they were selling the city as a great and awesome city. Well connected people were involved there. Um, Smyrna also held a political advantage over its neighbors in winning competitions to build monuments and tributes to the Roman emperors and the empire. There was a lot of Roman emperor worship that was going on there. The city had a significant resume that was built on emperor worship and economic success. It was known. The Christians of Smyrna, though, on the other hand, who refused to worship anyone but Christ, dearly paid the consequences for that decision every day. And it's this contrast of the haves in the city of Smyrna versus the have-nots in the church of Smyrna that sets the encouragement that Christ writes here in verse 8. It's going to show up on screen. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these words. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Christ borrows two characteristics from how he describes himself in Revelation chapter 1, and it's no accident that he uses these two characteristics to describe himself for the sake of the church. Christ is the first and the last, and he's the one who died and came to life. In a city full of firsts, in a city where if you were a citizen, you were successful, those who trusted in Christ were pushed to the last, were ostracized, were persecuted, were pushed aside. And Christ opens this letter by reminding the reader, this church, this suffering church, that not only is he the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, but he's also the supremacy over creation. He's the first over all of creation who is also the individual that experienced the worst at the cross, the last at the cross. If we remember that story of him up on that cross, you'll remember that every single disciple of his has abandoned him. That the people he came to save are now murdering him. And he's taking the weight of every single sin ever done in the history of mankind on his shoulders on that darkest day in human history. Christ is reminding his people, this church, I I am there controlling it all, but I also understand every single one of the pain that you feel. I get it. I empathize. I understand. I'm the first and I get being the last. The one who writes this letter to the suffering church is the same one who died a death that he did not deserve and has now come back to life as a victor over the ultimate consequence that not only we caused, past tense, but we currently are causing through our sin every single day. Christ understands what this church is going through. And his experience in in understanding that, he works to not dismiss their suffering, but rather come alongside them in their darkest hour. Verse 9 relates that. I understand. I get it. I know what you're going through. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The church of Smyrna is only one of two churches that we will read about where there's no reprimand in their letter. And I know that if I was a part of this church, I would kind of hope that there was a reprimand. If that meant I would be able to socially survive in a city, I mean, come on, this would be nice if I had at least a little money. The Greek word that is used in this passage is ultimate poverty. This church church had nothing, nothing at all. Um, This in part comes from uh, people robbing them, uh, mob rule, just taking from them wherever they wanted. There was no protection whatsoever from the government uh, on these churches. People stole from them, cheated them. Whatever it is, there was no way for this church, members of this church, to gain money or save money. But another reason this church is suffering financially as much as it is, is in part from the Jewish brethren in the city who continued to turn over these Christians to the Roman Empire. Now, for the long time and up to this point in Christianity's history, Christianity was considered a sect or a branch of Judaism. And as such, what benefits the Jews received, the Christians did also. And one of the major benefits the Jews had in the Roman Empire was the fact that they did not have to worship the Roman emperor. They could worship one God, which was their belief. And they had made an agreement with the Romans a long time ago for their allegiance to to the government that you will allow us to worship Yahweh, our God, that's it. And the Rome, Rome agreed. Well, at the outset of this movement that the Christians were, the Christians were protected under the religious freedom umbrella that the Jews had. But as the movement grew, Jews from around the Roman Empire became very wary of this upstart sect to Judaism. And if you think about it, it's understandable And I I can't blame the Jews for being wary of this. I mean, consider the Pharisees who held fast to the law and its tenets. The Jews in Smyrna are doing the exact same thing. They see the Christians as this offshoot cult that's worshiping a Messiah that the Jews never believed came and that this individual that they're worshiping, they crucified for blasphemy. It, It would be equivalent to somebody walking into our midst today saying, I am God, worship me. At first, we would be wary of this person. And if that movement grew, if people followed this person, we would work really hard as believers to distance ourselves from that person, to dismiss this person, to, to shun this person, because that's not what the scriptures point to, is somebody walking in, claiming their God, and getting away with it. Well, the same thing is happening in Smyrna. The Jews, not wanting to lose their freedom, which is one thing, but also working to protect what they believe to be true— turned against this fledgling church and turned them over as apostates to the Roman Empire. This, in turn, impacted this church's financial standing in the city, their social standing, their, you know, I can go on and on and on, but that began the persecution because the Jews refused to no longer protect this church Verse 9 also reveals an interesting play on words that Christ is using here as he writes to this church. Christ notes how the Jews had slandered the Christians and how he reverted or they have reverted the house of God into a synagogue of Satan. Now, Satan in both Greek and Hebrew is literally translated accuser or slanderer. So in essence, what Christ is saying is that the Jews have slandered the the, the Christians so much that they've turned this house of worship into a house for the slanderer, for the accuser, the ultimate accuser, the ultimate slanderer. The ones who initially by God has been set apart to be the messenger of the good news have turned against the very people that were following the true Messiah. It's a crazy twist of, of the plot, if you will. And so for the church in Smyrna, they would be remiss to dismiss suffering because it was a part of their everyday life. It was in all of what they did. They couldn't turn away from it. It surrounded them. It penned them in on all sides. Christ continues his letter. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Christ uh, begins this verse with a common refrain we've heard often throughout the Bible, do not fear. It shows up 38 times in the scriptures. And typically this particular command is followed by do not fear, I am with you. In this instance, it's followed by do not fear what you are about to suffer. All that the church has suffered up to this point is merely a forerunner of what they are about to go through. The tribulation is still to come. And if I'm a first century reader in Smyrna of this letter, this is disheartening. Lord, really? It's going to get worse? Some of us are going to end in prison. Even worse, some of us are going to pay the ultimate sacrifice for following you. My faith will further be pushed. My life will further be challenged for what I believe. And it's while certainly not the most comforting of words, it's it's not surprising to the church to hear these words. And it shouldn't be surprising to us to hear these words either. Note back in Matthew 24 verse 9, I'll reiterate the verse I started off with, as Christ delivers a message of what Christians can expect. When it comes to following after Jesus. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Uh, Earlier in Matthew, as Jesus sends out his believers two by two into the uh, Israel and Roman world. To share of the good news of what's going on with Christ. He warns them of tribulation. He warns them of persecution. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. The church of Smyrna had these letters. They would read these things and say, this is exactly what Christ promised us. Yep, that's it. That's exactly what's happening. Uh, later on in uh, Christ's ministry, right before He's about to go to the cross, He warns His disciples of how they will scatter as He heads towards the cross, to the point where no one is at the cross with Christ. John sixteen thirty two, behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave Me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There's encouragement there, and there's also encouragement in verse 10, as surprising as it may sound. Uh, Tribulation and suffering are promised for this church, and I believe for the universal, our church today, but there's a limit to that tribulation. Uh, Christ notes it as a 10 day limit and commentators are split completely. And I don't think we want to get religious about, is it a literal 10 days? Is it a figurative 10 day? The point that we want to hone in on, and it's the point that Christ picks up in Matthew 24, which I'll show you on screen here in a second. But the point we want to focus in on is the fact that it is a limited time for this tribulation. Suffering will not last forever. And that is a good thing for us. Notice here what Christ says in Matthew 24, a little bit later on um, in verse 21 and 22. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, for the sake of churches like Smyrna, for the sake of churches like those across the world, for the sake of the elect, for the sake of Christians, those days will be cut short. For the church of Smyrna and for the church of today, we would be remiss if we were to dismiss suffering because it's promised to us. It's something we need to be prepared for, think about, consider. Christ ends this letter to the church with encouragement. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Christ closes this letter very similarly to how he closed this letter to Ephesus. He notes the one who conquers. Another translation says the one who overcomes. What's different, though, about Ephesians or the letter to the uh, Ephesians versus the letter to Smyrna is what they have to overcome. If you recall from last week, the Ephesians had to overcome losing their first love. Doctrine, theology, these things became more important than love. And they would go around wielding this power of doctrine and theology and lost their sense of compassion For people. That was last week. And what's interesting about the church of Ephesians is is if they overcome this, an internal thing, internal repentance, an internal changing of the heart, they're promised heaven. That's what they need to do to right themselves with God. But it's an internal thing, it's something that they can choose to do. Notice the church of Smyrna. The church of Smyrna, what they have to overcome is completely external, something they can't control. Something that may never stop. In fact, the only way that they could stop this persecution is renouncing Christ, which is not what they're going to do. And so for the one who overcomes, the one one who conquers, it's something that they have to, it's an inner resolve to say, Lord, I'm going to stay faithful. Despite prison, despite death, despite the devil's temptation, I'm going to stay faithful. When nobody else is there to trust Lord, I can trust in you. It's a beautiful thing, but it's a challenging thing for that church in Smyrna. But they're given that same promise that the Ephesians are given. Christ notes that they are given the crown of life, or they will not be hurt by the second death. Both references to heaven. They will be home with Christ, which is the intent, which is the goal of our lives. So it leads us to our homework. And I'm going to say up front, as I said last night, and it's this off script because I hadn't written it this way, but I'm going to, I'm going to continue to be honest with you guys because what, you know, we might as well be honest, right? But I struggled with this topic and not so much the writing or the exegesis or the app. You know, I struggled with the fact that I am an American that lives in a free society that allows me to walk in these doors and not worry about persecution we can strike up a band, give our praises to the Lord. We can listen to a pastor speak. We can go and pray freely. We have probably more than five Bibles in our home. Most of us probably do. And I struggled with what do I do with this? What do I do with the reality that around the world people are suffering for Christ? People meet in secret People worship in silence so that they're not caught by authorities and put in prison or worse. What do I do with that? And so I, I end with homework, which is a little bit different than what we normally do because we pray and then we talk about homework and we go from there and, and, and the assignments are, are something we can jump into pretty quickly and they're pretty short. This one's going to be a lengthy assignment and I encourage you guys and I challenge you guys to run with this as far and as long as you guys want. Um, But I challenge you guys to try to try to do this and know that I'm doing this alongside you guys and know that we're doing this alongside the suffering church for the next 50 days. I want us to take up this prayer challenge and I want us to focus on not dismissing the sufferings of our brothers and sisters and what they're experiencing daily around the world, but embracing it and praying alongside them for, for hope, for encouragement, for safety, for protection, and, and if that, none of that comes, Lord, for the fact that they get to see the crown of life much sooner than we do, and that's a good thing at times. So, the, the challenge lies in, and you guys will see on screen a few things here. You guys can take a picture. This will also be sent out to you guys via social media. There is a link, uh, to opendoorsusa.org, and this is a, um, basically a, a church persecution website that goes through and talks about, um, all the persecution that's been going on in the world. Um, At that particular webpage, you're going to notice there's 50 countries listed. If you're on your smartphone, you just scroll down, you'll notice the list. Um, If you're on a computer, you'll have to get through the map. Um, but there'll be 50 countries listed. The first is North Korea. The last is Oman. And, and these are basically the, the 50 worst offenders when it comes to Christian persecution. You'll be able to click on each one of these countries. And whether you start, start with day one or start with day 50, I challenge you guys each day to pray for this country and to pray for the believers in that country. And the idea would be, you click on the link, you guys can read a little bit more about what's happening in this country, what's going on. There's some prayer points down at the bottom to kind of guide you on this. It's about five minutes worth of reading, um, you know, and, and it's up to you as to how much prayer you want to give it. Um, but I, I, would, I would encourage you guys to, to pray for these, these countries, to, to pray for these people. And not just for the believers, but for the government's for what, what's going on um, with the laws and legislations that are being passed daily that ostracizes and further persecutes Christians. And, and that the governments can open their eyes and see see you, see God through this. And then lastly, and, and maybe even most importantly, pray for the lost, pray for the, the, the people that are set out to undermine Christianity at every turn. I, I'm reminded uh, of a young man who was, destined to kill as many Christians as he possibly could. The man was named Saul. And he was dead set on stopping this sect of Judaism that was going to ruin the world. Until one day on the road to Damascus, Christ got a hold of him in a big way and asked him a very simple question, why do you persecute me? And from that moment on, Paul changed his life 180 degrees and was a mighty mighty force for the lord and I believe that miracles can happen and I believe even the hardest of hearts can change towards god And sometimes when we get up here, it's tough to say, well, just pray, because it seems like a simple solution, and yet prayer can be the most powerful solution we have. So I would encourage you guys, over these next 50 days, country by country, take some time and give some time to the Lord. I consider the 15, 20 minutes that I'm going to do in the day for this exercise, this activity, coming alongside believers in faith, nothing compared to what they have to face every single day because of their faith. And that's not meant to guilt anyone into doing this. That's not meant to force anyone into into thinking that this is uh, a reason for our salvation or anything like that, but just an opportunity for us believers. You know, there'll be about a thousand people that'll grace these doors here at Capitol over the weekend. A thousand people praying for these countries, that's a mighty, mighty force. Just consider that. Consider you guys joining your voices across the world in prayers for these brothers and sisters that are hurting. So consider all of that. Um, Let's close in prayer. And um, with that said, Lord, I just thank you for our freedoms. And I thank you for the ability for us to come into this room and not have to worry about persecution or suffering, Lord, to be able to freely worship you. But Lord, we know that around this world, suffering is real. Suffering because of our faith in you is, is happening. It's occurring all the time. We also know that suffering is promised to your believers, Lord. So, Lord, let us consider that. Let us be people who are honest about these things, Lord. And let us, let us pray diligently. Let us serve where we can Let us, you know, even if this leads us to some of us being called to these countries to minister directly to these countries, let us be open to that even, Lord, and what that may look like. Lord, we thank you for who you are, a good, good father that cares about his children, even despite the suffering that is going on around the world. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. If you guys want to stand, last two nights I was so like into my I totally forgot this last part. I will not forget it, these two services. So um, let me give you guys just a quick blessing. Go, be people of change, be prayer warriors for our brothers and sisters everywhere. And let, let us, let us be loud for the gospel. Grace and peace to you guys. Have a good morning.